Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Hi, everyone. I'm Lori LeBay, your host today, and I am thrilled you can join us on Alzheimer Speaks Radio. If you liked our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new, Alzheimer Speaks Radio is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people in the trenches doing fabulous work in the industry. So maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. Now, before I introduce our guest, I always like to do some shout outs. And so I've got a couple of exciting things for you. First, Mods Awards has opened up their application process for 2022. And this is an application to be awarded five to $25,000, depending on if you're an individual or an organization, for the work you have already done. So go to modsawards.org for more information on that. Also on April 6th, I'm so excited, our friends who have been working so hard on the documentary film Determined Fighting Alzheimer's is going to air on PBS April 6th. So check your channels and see what time that is in your area. Well, next I have to tell you about Dementia Map. It's a global resource directory that we built. It has over 150 categories you can search, plus it has a calendar of events, a blog, a glossary of terms. So check it out. Go to DementiaMap.com. And if you're interested in being a resource, reach out to me. I'd be more than glad to give you a tour. This has been something I've wanted for more than 40 years. Now, on April 7th and 8th, I am going to be doing a movie screening of the film called A Timeless Love, which to this day, I think is still one of the best films out there. We'll be doing a talk back afterwards. That is going to be in person in Winona, Minnesota. It is sponsored by the Winona Dementia Friendly Community. They're doing a whole week of education. And you can register for that by calling 507 454 5212. And then also, I will be doing a virtual presentation sponsored by Artist Senior Living called As the Cookie Crumbles. That'll be Wednesday, uh, April 20th at 530. That's Central Time. So that would be 630 Eastern Time. And you can register by going to theartistway.com forward slash Lakeview Events. Or you can call them at 312-432-1514. Two more things I want to tell you about. I continue to do Arthur's Memory Cafe virtually, which is sponsored by Arthur's Senior Care, the second and fourth Wednesday of the month at one o'clock central, as well as the Caregiver Connect program. Uh, um, sponsored by Brookdale North Oaks, which is the last Wednesday of each month at 10 a.m. For March, we're going to do that virtually one more time, and hopefully in April, we will be back in and 
and connected on a personal level. You can find out any of that information by emailing me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com or just go to our website, alzheimerspeaks.com. I want to do a shout out to the Alls authors. You see, if you're caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's or dementia, you're going to want to connect with them because they are a global community of authors writing about Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia from a personal experience level. They have the most comprehensive collection of hundreds of carefully vetted books and blogs covering all types of dementia and caring situations. And their authors share their personal stories and lessons learned that can help you on your own journey. They also offer a fabulous podcast called Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia, which you can find on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Their saying is, you're not alone. One can sing a lonely song, but we can also choose to form a choir and create harmony. So check them out at allsauthors.com. We are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner as they highlight the footbar walker. And then we'll be right back with our guests. I love the footbar walker. And let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, Adapt it. Well, I am so excited to have these two gentlemen join us because we're going to be getting some inside stories on both of them that you probably weren't familiar with. Both are movers and shakers in the dementia arena and have accomplished so much. So let me introduce them um, quickly. First of all, Michael Ellen Bogan was diagnosed with young onset Alzheimer's at the age of 49. And yes, you heard me right, 49. Prior to his diagnosis, he was a network operations manager for a Fortune 500 company. And he had difficulty in work-related tasks, which then led him to early retirement. As a world-renowned international dementia advocate and connector, he has been featured on uh, national syndicated TV and radio and media outlets He has written blogs, newspapers, journals, uh, website articles, and um, has been a guest speaker all over the world. Michael also served on the Pennsylvania Alzheimer's and Dementia Planning Committee and other advisory councils. He's testified before government and has had three letters published in the U.S. congressional records. He was also a regular speaker at NAPA and featured at ADI in 2012, which is Alzheimer's Disease International in their report. 
and he has represented the U.S. and the world for people living with dementia at the World Health Organization in Geneva. So quite a few accomplishments, and that's really all we had time to list. So thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Lori. Well, I'm going to introduce uh, George Vradenberg, but I'm not going to go into as much detail because the whole format of this is for Michael to kind of be giving us insights on George and asking him questions and vice versa. So I don't want to take anything away from Michael's questions. So for George, if you don't know him, you need to. So listen up because the man is full of interesting knowledge and history and what he has accomplished goes far above what most of us would think is even possible in this world in terms of being a connector. And so as far as George goes, he and his wife, Trish, co-founded Us Against Alzheimer's, which is a major, major advocacy platform that provides so many different resources. Their newsletter is incredible that they can get the groups, the connections, and we're going to let George tell you more about what all they do. It doesn't seem to have an end in terms of what they are willing to tackle and take on in terms of missing gaps. So thank you, George, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Lori and Michael. Well, I am very excited um, for this conversation. I always find it fascinating. So, Michael, I'm going to let you go ahead and kick things off. Great. Thank you so much, Lori. Mm -hmm. I came to, I guess, uh, Lori with the pitch uh, after doing uh, something with Teepa Snow, and I guess it got to my head that I could be a (laughs) co-host. Just kidding, no. Uh, My goal was to ask the questions of some of my favorite people. My goal is to make others aware of some of these folks from a side that most don't know about. I will start off by saying that George is the person I most respect. No one even comes close to him. I only wish I knew him before my dementia. Let me paint the picture on how I met this man. I started advocating for the cause over 12 years ago. One day, I was learning more about the Great Path Summit. I learned from someone that she was planning on trying to meet with the president, and somehow George's name came up. I don't remember all the details. In January of 2012, I sought him out so I could see if there was a way that I could tag along. I emailed him, and he called me back. It turned out that the information was confidential and very early and not planned out yet. Part of my information came from a senator who knew what George was planning at the time. It also seems I have spoken to him in the past, but I don't remember how we actually met. I'm going by my emails as I was able to locate them. At that time, I had no idea who this person was. I stayed in touch with him, and I was able to see him become a part of NAPA, which was formed. And to my surprise, George Vandenberg was on the council. I said, wow, I know this guy. And from then on, our relationship grew stronger. I was already lucky because I knew Harry Johns. CEO of the Alzheimer's Association, 
who also served on the council. At that time, as time went on, I watched George become the driving force of Napa. He was very smart, creative, demanding for sure, and very polished. In my opinion, a true leader. Not sure if I got this all right, George, but that's why we call it events. Michael, I seem to think that I have known you most of my life. I don't know exactly how we met. I don't remember. I certainly remember you sitting there at the World Health Organization advocating for patients around the world, not just the United States. Uh, and you have been the most connected person that I think I've met in the field. Uh, so all of the things you say about me, I'd say right back at you. You are a leader. You're you're indefatigable. You don't give up. You don't quit. And if you want to find somebody who knows something, go call Michael. He will find them. He's either on Michael's LinkedIn account or Michael will figure out how to get them on his LinkedIn account. So I'm a great admirer of Michael Ellenvoke, and he's one of the great advocates in the Alzheimer's field these days. I agree. He seems to have a bat phone with the direct line to whatever, <laughs> whatever it is that you need. Um, you know, one thing, uh, Michael, I'm going to have you just clarify for people, because some might not know what NAPA stands for and what that is. I believe, and George will have to correct me, National Alzheimer's Project Act. Perfect. And you think yeah, you have problems with your memory, Michael? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could be like this all the time. Trust me. <laughs> Well, did you want to go on and um, talk a little bit more about what you saw as far as us against Alzheimer's and, and what you watched George build? Sure. I watched us against Alzheimer's grow over the years, and I was so amazed. It not only grew fast, but it made sure to include all of those who had been left behind in many ways. This organization was the first one to point out and started networks respectfully reaching out to African-Americans, Hispanics, and so many diverse communities. George had this vision to see what was truly needed, but so missed by all other organizations in the dementia arena. What led you to the lead? to form us against Alzheimer's. I, my wife and I raised money uh, for the Alzheimer's Association for about eight or nine years, uh, up until about 2010, 2011, uh, and um, grew frustrated uh, that uh, we thought we could do more than just uh, a national Alzheimer's gala every year in Washington, DC. That gal had been in incredibly important in connecting members of Congress and the administration to the Alzheimer's movement. It was a way to basically educate uh, members of Congress, not just their staffs, but members of Congress uh, into what we were doing. And so we ended up at the end of that string, actually creating a, a, a political action committee uh, and what is called in, in the, the parlance of tax codes, a 501c4 or a lobbying organization. So we didn't start as a nonprofit uh, organization. We started as a lobbying organization, as a political action, because we were told by the association, but we were told uh, three things that you couldn't do. First, you can never get Congress to allocate, over allocate money to Alzheimer's research over other diseases because they 
did not want to do disease-specific funding. So we needed to take that on. Uh, second, um, you can only move science so fast. Uh, you, science will move at the pace of science. And we said, well, that's not possible. So we focused a lot on clinical trials. Uh, and the third was uh, people in this Alzheimer's field don't uh, collaborate. It's not in the DNA of the field to collaborate. So we created an organization called Leaders Engaged in Alzheimer's Disease, or the LEAD Coalition, uh, basically with the thrust of, yes, we ought to get everybody in the Alzheimer's world uh, on, on a phone call every month <laughs> uh, to figure out what is going on and to make sure that everybody is engaged wherever they want to be engaged. And we had the great good fortune, I had the great good fortune of meeting Ian Kramer, uh, who is buried about four deep in the local Alzheimer's Association here in Washington, D.C., asked him to head that, and he did, uh, and it's been a mighty organization. This lead organization has really become sort of a, the monthly check-in on everything Alzheimer's, uh, and it now has over 100 members um, who are regulars, and typically they get sign-on letters that are over 200 organizations uh, on them. Uh, so they basically now speak for the Alzheimer's field. There's only one organization that's not a member, uh, but so just about everybody else is. Uh, so we started as a political organization. We started uh, trying to get funding uh, asymmetrically to Alzheimer's research at NIH. And we've obviously been able to do that over a period of now 10 years. Uh, it's gone from 440 million a year to 3.4 billion a year. Uh, and it's gone, obviously, it's gone at a much more rapid pace uh, than any other disease, or any other institute at, uh, at the NIH. Uh, we've been able to, uh, uh, to create um, a related organizations. In addition to LEAD, we created the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's, which basically brought all the companies that have therapies in this space together, together with the Bank of America and Home Instead, so both financial industry uh, and the home care industry. Uh, and uh, so we have been... After five years of grant funding, we created the Global Alzheimer's Platform Foundation, uh, which is an effort to speed clinical trials and to get it going faster. So we built this organization through time almost organically, uh, but basically with Michael Ellenbog in the mind, uh, basically uh, because collaboration, getting everybody agreed on a goal and then agreed on a way to get to that goal uh, and then to fund it uh, with a lot of different organizations and a lot of different collaborators is the only way really, really can move the needle. It's not going to be one organization. It's not going to be one government. It's not going to be one NGO. It's got to be all of us working together. Hence the name of the organization, Us Against Alzheimer's. It's intended to be a word that suggests collaboration, unity, and purpose. But George didn't stop there. He also created Women Against Alzheimer's. He created ADPACE, along with many others. In my opinion, he found a niche in the industry that no one else saw. He found a way to bring so many people together in ways that has never been done before. I know you're an out-of-box thinker and a disruptor, but how did these things come to fruition? Well, you know, as uh, we had uh, three families that created this organization, John Dwyer, who currently is the president of the Global, Global Alzheimer's Platform Foundation, Meryl Comer, who is a caregiver for her husband for 22 years, 
and Trish and myself. Trish was my late wife. Uh, and um, the, the problem was obviously three families and we had an Alzheimer's association that was serving everyone. It had a very broad mandate, a very broad positioning in the field uh, and basically thought it was serving everyone. So what we thought is, well, who is underserved in that area? So if the Alzheimer's Association is serving everyone, there are people out there who identify not as just some of everyone, but identify in, 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 in minorities uh, or uh, gender uh, differently. So their interests are different because the disease hits uh, different communities at different rates, different prevalence with different problems. Uh, and obviously gender is a huge issue because of uh, the numerosity of women as both uh, as both victims and caregivers. So we had to distinguish ourselves in terms of who we are serving. So we did start very much in mind, as Michael has highlighted, uh, with the notion that uh, African-Americans and Latinos uh, and women uh, were underserved in a world in which the only organization that seemed to be serving patients in this field was sort of trying to serve everybody. And as a consequence, wasn't, serve, wasn't focusing on uh, the elements of the, of the entire population that were disparately impacted and disparately affected. So that's where we started, as Michael has pointed out. And so we've just grown through time based upon what we've seen as the problems. Uh, so we've been very active, obviously, in trying to develop uh, uh, and, and help develop uh, therapies, uh, medicines uh, for Alzheimer's. But we're also very interested in prevention. So we were working with uh, NAPA through NAPA to get a prevention goal. Uh, and so uh, he mentioned AD PACE, Alzheimer's disease patient and caregiver engagement, which is a deep dive with a bunch of scientists uh, with uh, studying large numbers of individuals and to identify precisely what patients really want uh, in the therapies uh, that are being developed. And it turns out that they don't, they want things that are different than what pharmaceutical companies think they want. Pharmaceutical companies think they want memory products. Well, memory is one thing, but we find that um, there are a lot of neuropsychological issues, mood, depression, um, you know, a sense of self-worth, a sense of agency uh, that really is deep uh, inside uh, the hearts and minds of patients. And so how do we deal with those issues? Just as an anecdote, if you look at the, um, the uh, clinical outcome assessments used to assess Biogen's product or Roche's product or Lilly's product, they will all focus on thinking things like CDR, some of the boxes and MIMSI, which don't really test for what it is that patients want. And so we begin to change the industry's perception on which methods of what uh, clinical outcome assessments should be used. So the neuropsychological index, the NPI, is one that more maps to what patients really want uh, than the other uh, more academic-oriented uh, memory tests. Um, and one Billy Dunn over at the FDA once said, who cares how many animals whose first uh, letter starts with A that you can name in 60 seconds? That is not a task that you normally do every day. So how do we get tests that measure what normal activity is and what patients would like to see in their drugs 
Uh, and so we formed AD Pace with, with that objective. So we've been guided by uh, Michael and, and a lot of people like Michael, the patients, to figure out what they want, uh, how to serve them, uh, because the three founders, uh, the founding families, basically were either patient families or caregiver families. Uh, and so we need to, to follow that guide star at all times. It's the patient's truth we're after, uh, not you know some scientific truth. It's the patient's truth that matters. I, you know, I love that. I, I kind of look at your organization as the, the super glue between the cracks <laughs> of connecting connecting the dots and the organizations and then you know, just kind of sticking your head down the hole going, how you doing down there? You know, come on back up here and, and pulling people into the conversation. Um, I, you know, with Alzheimer's Speaks, follow kind of the same philosophy. And that is that we cannot be sustainable if we're not inclusive. It's just not going to happen. And the voices of everybody matter because they affect the opinions of others. And we have to we have to get this conversation out in the open. And you've done a really nice job doing that, you know, with multiple platforms and devising specialty groups instead of, um, you know, I'm George and I'm going to handle every single thing in here. You know, you've you've set up the right people within your groups to assist with all of that. But you are such a, a a global thinker, a big picture thinker of seeing how things can connect and improve. And I think that in itself is beautiful. Um, just, I mean, I, I'm sure that you've heard just like Michael's heard and like I've heard, oh, that's not possible. Oh, that's not possible. We've tried that, but that's not possible. And, and for me and Michael, I think that fuels us. I would imagine that probably fuels you as well going, really? Watch me. Just watch me. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask Michael something? Absolutely. Michael, what do you want in a patient advocacy organization? For me, it would be important that they would start a dialogue with the people who are living with the disease. At the same time, they think of the idea of starting a clinical trial for that. Because... As you said, they need to understand what is important to us. And so many times they get it wrong, including the caregivers and everybody else who tries to get feedback for us. So unless you're not speaking to the people who are impacted by this disease, you're not going to get to me to the real answers of what's really important to us. I mean, I want to be able to live my life to the fullest, as long as I can. I, I accept that there's going to be things that I can't do along the way because my skill set's slowly being taken away from me. But help me figure out how I can continue to live my life with the things that I can do. And that's what people try not to focus on. You know, they focus on what you can't do anymore. You know, I want to focus on what I can do. And I think that's part of the problems with clinical trials. You know, one of the things that you said to me some time ago that always stuck in my head uh, is that the current technology tools not designed for this community are aiding you in what you do, whether it's autocorrect uh, or whether it's uh, Google Maps uh, or, or ways uh, that in fact, but none of those products are really designed 
with you in mind. It just happens that you use them as you can. So identifying what it is that you want to do with the capacities that you have until we cure this disease is important not just for pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies, but technology companies and service companies of a variety of kinds. So that was part of the motion, the emotion behind dementia-friendly efforts, the dementia-friendly movement. But you've, you said that to me, and it's always stuck in my head. that We really do need to think beyond the box of pharma although we do have to think <laughs> of the box of pharma or we'll never get a cure. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we ought to be thinking of these other tools that can enhance your, the capabilities that you continue to have. Technology plays a huge role. And I mean, if they would get the people involved uh, who do the designs for this, my God, we, we could live so much longer in the homes and there, there's so much more that could be done. Yep. Agreed. Well, and technology keeps getting broader and broader and keeps changing and changing. I mean, every upgrade, you go to your phone and go, okay, what does it look like now? You know, because things have moved around or websites. And if we could get a company that was willing to say, we're going to build a, something basic that's functional, that doesn't have to change its face and can still keep up with the technology back end in terms of disseminating information, but nobody seems interested in that. Everybody wants the, the, the fancier camera and the this and the that. And, and people with dementia are like, just keep it the same for me. You're, caught, you're stressing me out here and you're making me lose my connections by all these wonderful improvements that you have. And when you talk, I mean, if people really talked to the, the average Joe out there, most of them don't use a lot of the apps and, and things that are offered on the phone. It kind of reminds me of um, when I used to sell real estate, the builder always wanted everything big and flashy and we were building senior housing. And, and I said, you know, there's a gap in this lower end stuff. Let's build, you know, some townhomes that are just lower end. Oh, no one will buy it. No one will buy it. I said, I want it under a hundred thousand. I want a two bedroom one bath with a two-car garage. No, we can't do a one bath. And they wanted the big whirlpool tubs and they wanted the high ceilings. And it was like, know your market. High ceilings echo. They get cobwebs. People go on, on step stools. They fall off. They've raised eight kids in a one-bathroom house. This is not an issue. But they still have two vehicles or they want extra stuff in their garage. They're we blew that project out in nine months. It was supposed to take us two and a half years. And what did the builder build next? Big flashy, because it was an ego thing. It wasn't about serving. And I think that's part of the problem in terms of getting people to truly understand how important this is. Because when Michael can't communicate, then his family can't communicate. His friends can't. I mean, it, it, it's, like, it's like dementia. Dementia is not a disease of one person. You know, we have to look at a bigger angle and give that option to people. So off my pedestal, I'm throwing it back to you, boys. <laughs> no, I, I invested in a small company called Connected Living, mm -hmm. uh, which basically started in uh, nursing homes. And it was a way to get a very, very simple uh, custom designed, uh, a simple, the simple capability to communicate and connect only to the people in your network and to communicate mm -hmm. with them differently. So it automatically uh, sent pictures of your family to you. Uh, you can pick 
basically the people that you wanted to talk to, probably your family and your caregiving uh, community and support apparatus. Uh, it had uh, it had a connection to um, to some uh, a photographic company. So every family picture ended up you could just push on it and it would get into a uh, into an album. Uh, it, you know your music was on there. It alerted uh, family members of the of the meals that you were going to have in that nursing home the next day or that day. It, it, it alerted people to the activities in that. So you could talk to your family members about what you were doing. Unfortunately, it went under during COVID because all the nursing homes basically shut down. Uh, as a consequence, the nursing homes wouldn't invest in it. But it was going, it was like a rocket company. It just did not succeed because of its interruption with COVID. Uh, and I totally agree with you. So, simpler devices, but they're very permit you to customize it uh, to, to your community, your needs, your connections uh, is, is uh, you know, it's, I guess it's possible, but we get very complicated things because uh, the technology marketers basically want to serve all of our needs and let us pick. Well, that makes it complicated yeah. because that's make it simple for us to custom design these complicated tools for our particular needs. So I, I totally agree with you, Laura. It's like building a, a, a one, two-bedroom house with one bathroom at $100,000 a year. We need lower-priced devices that are much simpler to use and simpler to design for our, for our use. Well, and the other thing, I'll, I'll just throw out GrandPad is a, is a wonderful device, kind of similar to what you're talking about. But there's also a stigma that can be attached to that, and it's limited. And for people like Michael, they don't want just a circle. I mean, their circle's massive, you know, and so that wouldn't necessarily work for them being able to call outside their circle of friends, and some of those things are put in for protection. So there has to be almost a couple of of levels to that or the watches, you know, the trackable watches. Um, Finally, you know, Apple's got it, you know, with the geo... um, fencing and stuff but people wouldn't wear those things they look like a brick on your wrist for a while there you know or or an ankle bracelet I mean people were like okay now you're stigmatizing me again because it doesn't look normal it it just makes me stand out and so that's such a big piece one of the things that I was impressed by in going to Europe for the World Dementia Council um one of the one of the members of the World Dementia Council um uh, was worked for the NHS and supervised maybe a hundred people in the National Health Service in the UK, uh, and she had dementia. And as her capacity um, uh, slowly slipped away, they basically moved her job to the level that she could do. Mm-hmm. They didn't fire her. I mean, we'll go through Michael's experience, but they didn't sort of get rid of her or throw her to the side they basically re-leveled her job every six to eight months right so that she and and she basically until she was in late stage dementia had a very productive professional life and i know michael uh is um uh had a a, a, an experience uh, with his job and then getting a diagnostic pathway was a little tricky uh but uh uh, it's not the way we're dealing with it in the United States. We're not saying, hey, you have to make a reasonable accommodation for those that have uh, Alzheimer's. And you should basically figure out in your company how it is that you can adjust the job to the level uh, that a trusted employee uh, can perform uh, and allow them to stay in the workforce at the, at the level they can perform. 
So, Michael, I'd love to have you describe how it is that basically you exited the company that you worked with uh, when you were 49 or 50. Well, I got to tell you, it was, uh, for me, devastating because I, I, I think I was just peaking in my career. I was just getting to the point that I was really going to be, I mean, a real top person in the company. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sad part is I, I knew there was things going wrong with me for many years before that but I couldn't disclose it to anybody. And I think the company did find out about me. And uh, I, I think the biggest frustration I had was, and I don't know if it would have changed today, to be honest with you. It took such a long time to get a diagnosis. Uh, it, it actually took me 10 years to get a diagnosis. Uh, and sadly, I got fired after, uh, I guess, about five years having problems. And uh it wasn't till at least five more years that I got a diagnosis. And the problem is you can only call wrongful termination two years uh, to go back and, and say something. And that's where I think the laws need to change when it comes around dementia. You know, dementia is not like cancer or some other disease that you instantly know exactly what a person has. I mean, it's something that creeps up on you very slowly and it can have different impacts from different skill sets. Uh, so, uh, and also, they need to offer protection for people such as myself, because so many of them do get fired. You know, once they start realizing, I mean, if, especially if you're a lawyer or a doctor, I mean, you're going instantly. They don't even want to think about you. Uh, and that's what happened to me. I was in management. They knew I was having problems because they, of course, had access to my medical records since the company was paying directly for my medical records. So they knew I was going to see psychiatrists and all these things. So that's the sad part. There's nothing out there to protect you. And uh, I have to say, we're more than 10 years later into this, and the laws still haven't changed. And I still talk to so many people who are losing their jobs. And it's frustrating to know that nobody's trying to address those issues. You know, it's okay that it happened to me. But I brought this out and made so many people aware of this. But yet nobody's doing anything to change it for the next person. And that's the part that hurts me the most is like, why can't people use what I have learned to make it better for the next person? I totally agree with you. I just think that's, uh, we have not yet adjusted to a world in which uh, dementia is treated uh, with respect and with uh, honesty and with transparency in the workplace. It is something you have to hide uh, and uh, and try and get support from others to keep your performance up. And that's not right. There are a lot of jobs in business that are very, very productive at every single level of mental capacity, at every single level. Uh, and we work on it when we think of its mental health uh, issues now, uh, where basically uh, we try to make accommodation uh, and where disability laws are being applied in a way that is more protective of physical disabilities and even mental disabilities, but not for dementia, just is not on that radar screen. So I totally agree. I mean, you and I had discussions about getting into Napa, having you get into Napa because you could, you know, travel uh, to those meetings. And it was a bit of a struggle to make the most basic accommodations for people who could not travel and who really could not come to the meetings, uh, but who certainly could participate, learn, 
uh, and provide advice and counsel to that uh, to that body. And that was a struggle. And this is the Department of Health and Human Services, for goodness sakes. And that was difficult. So uh, I, I certainly uh, have experienced with you that some of those barriers in, in business and in this case, in, in the public sector. Yeah, I remember one of our um, colleagues that, that did dementia chats with us, Michael, uh, Stephen, who worked in, I want to say he worked in a hospital and his doctor never told him his diagnosis, but HR pulled him in and fired him, telling him he had dementia. I mean, he had no idea he was even diagnosed. He wasn't told. And I just think of, you know, I, I understand companies wanting to deal with um, liability and, and things there, but they also have to, they have to deal with human dignity and rights and do it in a respectful fashion. And my gosh, HR needs to be educated on how to deal with this in a much more compassionate, fair value in, in terms of, you know, how they support somebody instead of clean your desk out, this is your last day. You know, I, I remember Steve talking about just driving home. He went out in the parking lot. He couldn't even move. He just stopped for hours before he could even get in the car. And that's putting that person in danger. I mean, in, in physical danger, um, because we all know, you know, what stress does to this. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. Well, I got to tell you, my favorite organization is LEAD. And most people probably don't even know about that. It stands for Leaders Engaged on Alzheimer's Disease. This is a national coalition of more than 90 member organizations. And they're committed to improving the quality of life for people living with dementia while advancing science. There's a real interesting story behind this, how it got started. Can you tell us that, George? Yeah, uh, back in uh, the day, um, back in maybe 2009, 2010, frustrated at the uh, reluctance of some organizations uh, to collaborate, uh, I and uh, Rob Eggie, of all people, of the association, started a discussion group involved uh, Zavin Kachaturian and you know, a number of organizations. Um, but uh, there was a struggle about what the organization could become. Uh, it was uh, viewed by the association as something uh, that was basically a discussion group uh, that uh, should remain a discussion group uh, and should not have its own voice. That is, lead should not speak uh, because they thought that the association was the definitive uh, you know, voice in the field. And it certainly was at the time. So the notion that someone else purported to speak on behalf of uh, the, the Alzheimer's community uh, was something they couldn't tolerate. So it ended up that we shifted from me and, and, uh, and the association uh, to me and Alzheimer's Foundation of America, which is a New York-based, Long Island-based foundation, but it's now national. Uh, and so for many years, that was the partner. Uh, and then they uh, they 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 moved out because they uh, they reduced their focus on advocacy in Washington. It's now uh, Volunteers of America, VOA. Volunteers of America is now the partner and lead, and they've been here for five or six years. But this is an effort uh, back to the notion that there was not much collaboration in the field back in 20, 
2010, 2011, when we got started, uh, to try and create a collaborative world where people across the field were willing to share. They're willing to share what was happening in various pieces of either the government or in private sectors or in the nonprofit sector. Uh, and they could come to a place where they weren't judged and they weren't, there wasn't any vertical structure to it. Uh, and so now every month, LEAD Coalition, and has now for several years, uh, basically been a forum for everyone in the field. Uh, and it, it is a way for people to, to bring top government officials in, top pharmaceutical company officials in, key NGOs, key, key advocacy organizations, to report on what they're doing so that everyone could benefit from what everybody else was doing. Uh, and we could get this collaborative spirit driven into this community. It needed it. Uh, as I said before, it's not one organization that's going to solve this problem of Alzheimer's. It's not going to be one sector. It's not going to be one country. Uh, and we need to bring this collaborative attitude, behavior, uh, and uh, value uh, to as a, as a deep value of the Alzheimer's community. So, I, you know, I, we did this in the United States with LEAD. We're now trying to do it globally with the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative. So we've created a Swiss foundation uh, that is tackling this issue at a global level. Uh, but uh, because it turns out that 90% of the gen gen genetics work has been done on white Europeans uh, or their progeny, and 90% of the people of the world aren't white Europeans <laughs> So it seems pretty silly to think that you're going to solve this problem for everyone by just studying a sliver of the population that's been affected. So we've begun to get uh, uh, a wide variety of both researchers on the one hand uh, and cohorts of individuals being studied in countries, virtually every country, certainly every continent uh, on earth uh, together to begin to think about how it works, this disease works in different populations with different historic legacies. African-Americans, uh, the APOE4 variant of uh, genetics is not as prominent or as influential in their bodies as it is in white Europeans. If you don't know that uh, and you haven't studied it, these medicines may work differently in African-Americans than in whites. Or put another way, we need, may need medicines that are aimed and targeted at those that have different genetic uh, patterns to the progression of their Alzheimer's uh, than white Europeans. And so we may need different medicines for different populations or at least skewed differently. So, uh, this, so this notion of how to be collaborative, how to be inclusive, uh, how to be sharing, uh, how to think that you, it's not me or you that has to win. Uh, it's as we say, <clears throat> we want every company to win. We want every company to make a lot of money basically curing our disease. Uh, we want every scientist to become a Nobel laureate in Alzheimer's uh, because we don't care. We just want solutions. We just want the answers. Uh, and that's what the lead was a spark of how to create that collaborative attitude and value and sharing attitude uh, within the field. That's interesting because it's funny you say that because Davos was my second favorite of the groups. And I didn't realize till now the role that Davos actually played. So that, that's really, I find that very interesting. Do you want to shed some light on some of the accomplishments that LEAD has been able to accomplish? Well, I think LEAD, is, uh, LEAD has turned out to be not only a great place for sharing, 
it has turned out to be a very, very effective advocacy voice in Washington uh, for the Alzheimer's community. Because uh, when we hit a big issue, like how much money we ought to be asking um, uh, Congress to allocate to Alzheimer's research at NIH next year, uh, they can bring together two or 200 or more organizations around that goal. And uh, when, you, when a member of Congress looks at a letter from one person, that's impactful. But if you bring a letter to them that has a two, over 200 organizations behind it, they say, okay, this speaks for the field. So, so it's uh, appropriations, it's policy changes on the part of Congress, uh, and so they have been essential to basically the advocacy effort on behalf of the Alzheimer's community. Uh, so I think that's one of their main achievements. Uh, the core, though, is driven by a value of sharing and togetherness and unity uh, in the field, uh, not because they're trying to be prominent themselves, but because they want to raise the voices of everyone in the community, not just their own. Towards the end of last year, Us Against Alzheimer's celebrated its 10-year anniversary. It's so hard to believe what you folks have accomplished in such a short period of time. Most people do not realize this organization was built by a handful of people who were extremely dedicated to the cause and were volunteers in what they did. Your personal philanthropy underwrote the operating cost of us against Alzheimer and still does today. Knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently? Well, that's a huge question because I don't ever really look backwards. I only look forwards. Uh, I would correct one thing. Uh, I personally cover all the overhead of the organization, not all of its operating costs. We're still a very small organization, about $10 million a year compared to the Alzheimer's Association, $300 million a year. Uh, But uh, I I could not afford to cover all of its operating costs. But I do cover all the overhead. Looking back, it's a really interesting question. Uh, I would have tried to find two or three billionaires (laughs) who joined with me. So we're, we're finding... Uh, that we have more uh, uh, expectations on what we can do than we can afford. You know, and every year there is another major issue confronting the field that we would like to take on. And it's only our capacity to convene people and to get people together and then get external funding that permits us to move forward. I'll take... Uh, There are two examples that we've been working on now for a couple of years and one brand new one. The two examples that we've been working on for years is equity. As you pointed out, we started with this in our DNA to serve minority communities uh, and and women. Uh, And we have now uh, funded by the CDC a Center for Brain Health Equity. Um, And that basically is uh, bringing out to the fore uh, a much more visible a challenge to how it is that we can increase participation by more minorities in clinical trials. Uh, but I, I am not, uh, I am persuaded that there's a lot more we should be and can be doing there. Uh, so I do think that that is one area where I would like a lot more resource to really explode out how it is that we're going to get into community health centers uh, to basically train up staff to be able to detect and diagnose this disease in minority populations and in 
low-income populations uh, going forward because we're going to get therapies. And if we really want those therapies accessible to all elements of our community, we really have to have go to places where people are. Community health centers are actually potentially in their homes. The second area has been prevention. We've worked now for about three years uh, uh, to raise the issue of how do we get a national commitment uh, to preventing this disease through lifestyle uh, changes and through uh, management, better management of comorbidities. Uh, and so uh, under the leadership of uh, one of our executives, uh, we were able to persuade through NAPA, uh, the NAPA to uh, recommend to HHS that we set a national goal uh, for uh, prevention of Alzheimer's disease, a public health policy, a public health approach. Um, uh, and they did that at the last week of uh, December of last year. They adopted goal six at the first time in 10 years that the National Alzheimer's Plan had been amended and a new goal added. So we're very proud of that. But how to implement a series of interventions in American society to cause people to be healthier in their old age, and particularly with attention uh, to potential future brain diseases, uh, potential neurodegenerative diseases, uh, is, is a big undertaking. It's an undertaking that all of us should, uh, in society should want to see happen, including businesses who would like to see their employees be healthier, and families clearly that want to, their, their families to be healthier, um, hearing aid manufacturers who want to make sure that, if in fact, everyone has a hearing aid who needs it, uh, which uh, is a problem of uh, social connectedness and loneliness, uh, if you have hearing problems, uh, frailty. I mean, all these issues basically is important to business. It's important to families. It's important business opportunity if we can identify national interventions, which will really improve the health of our older population. So that's one that I very much would like to, to, to elevate and get more greater financing on. The third and the new one is, uh, arises because we now have a therapy on market. Uh, and we're gonna have probably two or three in the next couple of years. How do we know which therapy is best for which patient? How do we collect the data that is not in the clinical trial, which is a very, very selective set of people? that don't have any comorbidities, don't have Down syndrome, <laughs> you know, all these exclusionary factors that basically prevents the general population from getting into a clinical trial because so many people are excluded by, because people really want a very precise population to see whether the drug actually works. And to do that, you've got to pick your population very carefully. Uh, and that excludes most people. But when you release a drug on the market and it's an available to Lots and lots of people who have heart disease, who have diabetes, who have all these other conditions, who live in rural areas, who live in core city areas with a lot more pollution. You really would like to know how these drugs work in real world populations and study them. So what we are designing uh, is a real world evidence platform that will systematically, with your consent, uh, get access to your health records, to get access to your geographic location, your family structure, to your other comorbidities, so that we can begin to see in whom these drugs are most effective and where we ought to try and make sure if they aren't effective or if they're at greater risk for some reason, uh, 
that we identify that so we can tailor these drugs that are coming through the pipeline in a way that really gets the right drug to the right person at the right stage of the disease. Uh, and I say right person by what their comorbidities are and what other conditions of life they may live in. So that's a, a third area where we really do need a lot more resource in order to execute on those. But the way we've done it in the past is basically to say, what's the goal? Who's interested in that goal? We'll start convening and co-developing a platform or a product or an intervention uh, and then go out and put it into some sort of, uh, I mean, I, I cover the incubation costs of these efforts. Uh, and then you put it into some sort of uh, prospectus and go out and seek funding uh, for the, the, the common platform that serves the goal that everybody agrees we need to accomplish. That's a very long explanation uh, to your very simple question, Michael. Well, I, I, I can assure you we're going to get that all done because what people most don't know about you is that you work 80 hours a week for this cause and you're supposed to be in retirement. You know, I am. I, I look at, there's nothing greater at this stage of my life than to have a deep purpose, love of family, you know, and a deep purpose in life. And so this gives me purpose. Keeps me alive, keeps me healthy. Same thing that everybody with dementia says. When they are, when they're an advocate, it fends off other other symptoms of the disease, and uh, you know, evens things out. I, I have one comment I want to make, George. When you were talking about you know your your third piece about being able to dive into people's health records, are you familiar with Picnic Health, or maybe that's part of what you're doing? It will be. Okay, because I had just found out about them not too long ago and uh, that they were, you know, they were looking for people to participate in um, sharing that information. So there are a lot of people collecting a lot of data on health Mm -hmm. and they're making a lot of money uh, because they have some particular area of interest. But we haven't done it in Alzheimer's yet. Mm -hmm. We haven't had drugs, so I'm saying it's sort of like, you know, why would you develop something that tests uh, who is best suited for a drug when you don't have drugs on the marketplace? Now we on market, so now we have a drug, and I think we're going to have another couple of drugs in the next few years, and so now there's going to be a greater attention paid to this. But what we don't have is how these drugs perform relative to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, because patients want to know, should I take a Lilly drug to a Roche drug, a Biogen drug, you know, a, you know, a E-side, A-side drug. And so, while we're not a competitive organization, we would like to be able to advise patients on what the experience of these drugs in real world populations might be, mm-hmm. so that they can make better choices uh, with their doctors with the scientific evidence behind each of these drugs, but with real-world evidence on what, how each of these drugs performs in different kinds of individuals. Well, and I think with COVID, too, people were thinking about that more of, well, should I take the Moderna? Should I take the Pfizer? I mean, they were starting to look at, oh, there's more than one, which one would be, I mean, everyone was like, which one should I take? And they were beginning to become more educated in terms of options. So I think in some ways that, that's probably a, a gift in terms of what you want to do because interest, I think, has really been perked by that. If you believe in, in the vaccination or not, people just saw, oh, there's things to choose from. And I still have to make a decision, you know, based on, based on that. But if you have heart disease, 
-hmm. and you go to your doctor and say, I've got this condition, whether it's a atrial atrial fibrillation or something else, Mm -hmm. you tend to say, take your doctor's advice on, on what the appropriate medicine or intervention might be. You'd really like to have patients have available to them some platform that says for this condition, these are the three or four drugs. What is the relative price? What are the relative performance? What's their relative history in terms of it, their experience in real world population? There's really nothing like that out there right now. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, WebMD, you know, there are a lot of services that do this, but, you know, I don't know that they're user friendly and I don't know. That yeah. Certainly we don't have it in Alzheimer's. And so this is what's guiding me is Alzheimer's drugs. Yeah. Well, and most, I think most people just even in the, the chat rooms and stuff, if someone's saying, okay, they just prescribed me this and I have Lewy body or I have FTD, you'll always hear somebody pop up. Oh, that's not a good mix. You know, we did. I mean, and it's really a conversation on a very low level that's not broad. And you just kind of cross your fingers that you might hear from other people. Cause like you said, there isn't a place to, to be able to go, but I think part of it is you know, I even look at death certificates and maybe this has changed since my mom died in 2014, but I remember in 2014, they could only pick one thing to say she died of. And I'm, I was adamant. I wanted Alzheimer's disease on there. And they were like, well, but you know, she, she had um, pneumonia or, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, this is a 10 minute tech fix. This is asinine that comorbidities cannot be listed because that would be a great broadening of the base for data in and of itself. Same, like you said, in terms of doctors being able to plug in these different morbidities when they are prescribing a medication, because they don't always have a lot of detail in that. And everything's computerized now. Well, it's important for families too. But you know, one of the problems with how they count people on how they died, the mortality statistics is more a CDC problem. Mm -hmm. Unless mm-hmm. uh, it's more a regulatory problem because CDC only wants one cause of death, although they may be contributing causes, it's subsidiary. And so most people with Alzheimer's, I, I don't know the, this for sure, many people that die of Alzheimer's die of either sepsis or pneumonia or other mm-hmm. conditions, but the clear precipitating cause of death uh, is, is Alzheimer's. Uh, and so that's why we're undercounted. We did a study association and we did separate studies five, six years ago and found that the number of people who die with Alzheimer's every year is five to 550,000, 500,000, 550,000 people a year. And the association did a study that 600,000 people die with Alzheimer's. Uh, die, die with Alzheimer's. Uh, so each of us had found roughly half a million people, which put us on a par in terms of mortality with heart uh, and cancer. Uh, but we are undercounted because the immediate cause of death, the most immediate cause of death is always listed as something else. Because mm-hmm. a doctor, doctors, at least sort of internists or even the nurse practitioners who are entering the data on this form, you know, really don't know the science of exactly mm-hmm. that, what the precipitating element was of a sepsis or a pneumonia or some other condition. And so it's easier to do that. And it, quite frankly, they will, you, uh, since doctors are so bad at diagnosing this disease, Michael is case number one in this 
kind of situation. Mm -hmm. They don't know it. They just don't know. Our health system just isn't ready for, yep. for Alzheimer's. Yeah. Well, Michael, you want to get us back on track? I kind of got us off there. And because we've only got about 25 minutes left. And I know George probably has questions as well uh, lined up. So, Sure. That, that, that's why I love this guy and the organization he's built. It, it's the best in the dementia arena. I can only say that there's no one better. This is, to me, true dedication from the heart. And it was st started by him and his late wife, Trish Friedenberg. We all miss Trish terribly. She was the powerhouse, and she had her own special style in confronting this disease. Can you talk about how she stirred passion in others and how she rallied members of Congress? Well, you know, it was her grandmother, uh, then her mother, uh, and while she doesn't know it, uh, her brother, who've had Alzheimer's. So it's three generations of her family. Uh, and uh, what drove me into this, even after Trish died, uh, was the fact that this disease is aimed like a dagger at the hearts of my kids. So I, you know, this is all family-based. My wife had an extraordinary sense of humor, an extraordinarily positive way of looking at life. Uh, she, she wrote for Designing Women and Kate and Allie and Family Ties, which were shows of the late 80s and 90s. Uh, but that's her sense of humor. She would write a 55-page script. She'd do it in one sitting, uh, and you would see the act breaks uh, for the advertising and, and uh, uh, just, and she'd go back and correct the typos. And I asked her once, how in the heck did she do that? And she says she closes her eyes and takes dictations from the characters. <laughs> so she was just taking dictations from all those four sugar baker girls uh, in Designing Women. I said, how do you do the accent? She says, I'm just listening. So she had this tremendous mind that really was very, very creative. Well, precisely to Michael's question in terms of her passion with members of the Senate and House, I remember vividly, she had gone to a, a two or three fundraisers for a particular senator. Uh, and the Senate, she kept asking the senator, um, uh, uh, why aren't you uh, advocating and voting for additional funding for Alzheimer's? And he said, well, basically, I don't want to be disease specific. It goes back to something I said earlier. I'll, I'll basically allocate money to the NIH, and I let the scientists over at NIH decide where they allocate that money. And she said, well, if the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff came to you and says, I want $600 billion next year, uh, and I am the expert in national defense and in military affairs, just give me the $600 billion. I'll figure out where to put it wouldn't you think of asking him some questions about his rationale and his priorities? Uh, <laughs> and he, he said, well, that's different. Why is it different? You know, the NIH has a budget now of well over $40 billion. This is not chump change. Shouldn't you ask the NIH how they allocate this money? And she did this about three meetings. And she would say in those meetings that people would back away from her because she was really getting under his skin and it was uncomfortable for other people. And one night he called us at home, said, can I speak to Trish? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, you persuaded me. I'll vote for Alzheimer's research. 
She was passionate. She was committed. She kept telling me, what are they going to do? Fire me? I'm a citizen. <laughs> they, they can't fire me from my job. Uh, my job is being a citizen and an advocate for Alzheimer's. So she had both that passion, humor, uh, and a certain boldness uh, created by her intense uh, intense devotion to her mother and grandmother, uh, which caused her to be really a passionate, really passionate advocate. So that brings me back to the Bradenbergs. While they're philanthropists in the dementia arena, they also help many other causes. I never knew such good-hearted people existed in this world. And like I said, George will never say this to anyone. This alone should be why others turn to this great organization. George and I have disagreed at times because I'm too demanding, but I think we keep each other in to the best of our game. And I will say, if we had five Georges, there would have been a cure by now for this disease. Michael, I, I appreciate those words, but there are a lot of very generous people in this world. Uh, and there are very, a lot of good-hearted people in this world. There are a lot of bad ones, too. But there are a lot of very, very good and generous people in the world. I've had a great joy in meeting so many of them in the philanthropic community and there are people a lot wealthier than i one of the things i can't stand is very wealthy people who do not give back i mean their success in life is based on the fact that we've created a system of laws in the united states and a system of capitalist development in the united states which has enabled them to be wealthy uh, and they ought to recognize that the wealth they've created is not their their simple you know, isolated brilliance. It is because they are in a system that permits people to make a good deal of, some people to make a good deal of money. And they, quite frankly, quite frankly uh, should give back. So the giving pledge, the pledge by billionaires that they'll give more than half uh, of their wealth back to charity, I think is positive. And I don't think that's enough. I think that'll be 90%. Uh, but but I, there are a lot of good people in this world. I, and I've met a lot of them, uh, or some of them now. They just aren't in Alzheimer's. A few are. Len Lauder at the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, uh, like I, covers the uh, overhead of his organization out of his personal pocket. Uh, but that is a great organization. Uh, Cure Alzheimer's Fund up in Boston. Another three or four families created that with their own wealth to cover the overhead. Uh, and they uh, basically do great genetics work. So there are a lot of, a lot. There are some individuals, but they're not enough. And, you know, we know from our own polling, Maria Shriver did some, we did some, that if you ask people whether you've been touched by Alzheimer's, either in your family or, or friends, about one third to one half of people will say that they've been touched. If that's the case, one third or one half of the billionaires in the world have been touched by Alzheimer's. Where in the hell are they? Why aren't they investing in this? To the extent that they are, they tend to build buildings, which are good, you know, but, uh, in, you know, uh, so I'm, 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 I'm not going to say frustrated, but I am certainly hopeful uh, that we can find much uh, higher net worth individuals who invoke, uh, to invest a lot more of their personal wealth into this field. So we keep at it. 
eventually. We've always grown organically. We will continue to poke, poke out and find them. Uh, they will come to us eventually. So it's taken a little more time than I'd hoped. Everything takes more time than you hope. You mentioned well, when we formed, when we started in, 20, in 2010, we set a goal of um, stopping Alzheimer's by 2020. We've missed. But, you know, the national plan for Alzheimer's said we're going to uh, prevent and effectively treat Alzheimer's by 2025. And now Medicare is not going to cover the first four drugs uh, that have come out that are disease modifying, which if uh, taken by those at the earlier stage of the disease can slow this down and create another year or two of uh, capacity at the very, very early stage of this disease. And by the time that they get another year or two of, uh, of living at an MCI or very, very early AD, we'll have another drug. We need a chain of innovation here. And Medicare is standing right in the way of it. On the positive side, the president announced today uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, which is something that uh, a group that uh, Ellen Siegel of the Friends of Cancer Research and I uh, convene every Friday, including this afternoon uh, at four o'clock, uh, to, uh, to basically advocate for this new agency. We now have it formed, it's authorized, it's appropriated, and now we've got to get it set up. And one of the two main goals that Biden has charged this agency with is Alzheimer's and cancer. I know when we started, people were not using Alzheimer's and cancer as a pairing of the two most significant unmet needs in society. Now Alzheimer's is right up there with cancer in people's minds in terms of the focus that we ought to be putting on this disease in this country. It used to be Alzheimer's, excuse me, used to be cancer, heart, and diabetes were the three major prevalent diseases that people says we ought to set as our national attention to and a focus on. And now it's cancer and Alzheimer's. So, you know, for cancer, with the National Cancer Act back in 1971, cancer has been this now at this for 50 years. Uh, and we didn't get a NAPA until 2011. So we've only been at it for 10 years. So well, and there is overlap between the diseases. I mean, you hear chemo brain and now we've got COVID is probably going to push those numbers up as well. Diabetes is one of the leading causes, you know, for, for many. So again, it gets into looking at some of those comorbidities and how do they overlap and how do they affect one another? And just like people with dementia would say all the time when they, you know, they really started pushing to use the word dementia instead of Alzheimer's because they said so many of our symptoms overlap. And when you approach from a, a social angle, not just a, a medication um, angle for a cure, but uh, for treatment, so many of them are good across the board. Right. Again, getting those conversations and, and getting that creative um, juices working. My gosh, they're the, the best spreader of the word out there those that are living in and dealing with this disease. So, so right. You know, it's a, um, we tend to define our health by the symptoms of a particular disease, mm -hmm. cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart. Increasingly within the scientific community, there is a belief that there are common causes to all these diseases, mm -hmm. that there's the breakdown of the cells in their, your body uh, as a product of aging. Uh, and that when those cells break down, they, they display different symptomatic manifestations of heart, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, when in fact the causes 
of all these diseases is a breakdown in the cells in your body caused by age. And thus aging itself is a disease. Uh, and then in fact, at least in Silicon Valley where they like to hype a lot, they basically mm -hmm. say aging is now just a, an engineering problem. We now know some of the underlying mechanisms of aging. And as we begin to address those, well, we can actually prevent aging in a way that will prevent symptomatic cancer, symptomatic Alzheimer's, symptomatic heart disease. So, I mean, the whole notion of the way we define health by our mm -hmm. symptoms and not by the underlying processes in our body is one that has, I think, uh, prevented the creativity that you talk about in terms of dealing with the human. Mm -hmm. From our point of view as a human or as a patient of any of these, you know, that's what we had to look at. And virtually everyone uh, in middle age or lower or older have multiple uh, of these conditions. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we uh, think about it. Well, if everybody over 50 or 60, 70 has multiple conditions, maybe there's something about age that is causing all of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so what are the underlying mechanisms of aging? And so scientific community is going there uh, and it's a fascinating development. Uh, people are really excited about the notion of just solving the aging, or the disease of aging. The Chinese drug uh, that has been approved in China uh, starts with a microbiome with your gut mm -hmm. based on a seaweed extract uh, from China. Uh, and it has effects on the brain, positive effects on the brain. So this notion that maybe our whole body is not just, it's not just a brain or a breast or a heart. It's, it's, it's maybe there's some underlying causes down in that microbiome or gut, which tends to have, I don't know what the multiple of, of uh, the cells in, down there mm -hmm. uh, are compared to the cells in the rest of the body. So, yeah. you know, I think we, we still, as far as we've moved in the scientific field of aging, there's so much more to, to learn and to, to, to figure out. That's exciting. Well, exactly. and when you, when you mentioned the gut, I mean, for how long was that poo-pooed, that whole theory? Exactly. You know, and, and that happens. I think there's, there's those stigmas in all different areas um, in dementia. Michael, do you want to wrap up so we can throw something over to George and he might have a question or two to ask you yet? I'll tell you, we have so many questions left, Gloria. <laughs> <laughs> we, we could probably do another show. But today, I want to personally thank George from the bottom of my heart there was no one more that shows his great character, compassion, and why he's such a trusted, respected leader for those living with dementia and their caregivers. I believe if it was not for George, my life would have been over a long time ago. I have probably accomplished what no other dementia advocate has been able to do, but much of this would not have been possible without him. You may remember, I once made a comment in a speech I gave at Napa, which resulted in me being banned by the government in buildings. While I was great at doing things and finding ways out of things, I met my match with the government. They were compelling, completely ruthless in every way, and everyone turned against me, including the Alzheimer's Association, who threw me under the bus and ran me over multiple times as I had lost everything I had accomplished. That was a bad time in my life, and I still cannot believe that happened to me through Napa, who claimed they wanted to help people with dementia. I had just about given up with all of my great connections, and no one could help me. 
Then I remember getting a call from a lawyer from Arnold and Porter. They told me that they were asked to represent me by George. While it took a while, they successfully were able to reverse what happened to me. And for the record, it's not what I said at the U.S. It was at, NAP, at the NAPA meeting that created the issue, but a statement I actually made at the World Health Organization that pissed them off and caused them to retaliate five months later. So George, you may not know this, but I really believe you have saved my life and I probably would not be here if it was not for you. And I was in a bad place in my mind at that time. The government had devastated me by their actions and you saved me. Well, Michael, that's extraordinarily kind of you to say. Very, very generous. Hell, I say this in public, but I love you, Michael. I mean, you are uh, the most passionate advocate that I know. You've become a good friend over the last however many years since we met. We can't remember when, uh, but uh, you are uh, you are for why we fight and why we fight hard, why we fight with passion. Um, and why we don't allow things to stand in our way, because we know we're fighting for you uh, and many others like you. But but you in particular uh, have been center for my own passion uh, and why I do what I do every day. So I uh, thank you uh, for your generosity and being such a friend uh, to me. So, Well, the question's up to you at this point if you want to ask one or I could go. <laughs> I tell you, this was a pretty good ending, Laurie. I- <laughs> Yeah, it, it really has been enlightening. And, and just to see both of your personalities come out and um, your appreciation for one another, your, your passion. I, I'm a firm believer passion passion can crash through any, any obstacle. And, you know, George, you had mentioned earlier about, you know, we've got so much funding, but we still get together and say, what should we do? And then we ask who wants to be part of this and we just move forward. And I really think... Uh, so often in government, in organizations, they're so worried about getting this name and that name and this title and, and this person. And then somebody else gets assigned to take it over who doesn't have the passion. And it's disruptive, you know, and sometimes, you know, excuse my language, it just shit cans everything. I mean, it's out the door. It's, it's dead. It's squashed. And when you get those people with passion, moving mountains and and stepping up like you did with helping Michael with Napa, you know, I mean, that was really, a you know, saying, hey, you are supposed to be representing this population. I mean, to me as an individual, this is what it said. You are supposed to be representing this population and you are not. If you can't understand the basics of what happened here and how to support this. And I think that happens way too often. People have great titles and they've gone to school, but they don't really understand the humanity behind the situation, the people dealing with this and, and what it is really like. You um, had a great point of just in business in general, people adjusting jobs for people who have dementia or other disabilities, or maybe who want to retire, but not quite retire, but they want to back out, but everything's black and white, black and white and black and white is not working for the majority of businesses or people. And so things need to be modified. We have to get out of that box and we have to say we can do better together, but we can't do that if we don't listen. 
to people. You know, that is just the, the critical point of, and, and us against um, Alzheimer's has really done a nice job of bringing people together. We didn't even get to, you know, your, your um, teleconferences that you have and the highlights that you do with researchers and people living with the disease or the A-list. I mean, there's so many things that you guys are involved with that have changed how, like with the A-list, those nice, short, sweet little questions people can just fill out at home, take some five minutes to do if that, and boom, then you get back and say, okay, this is what we found out. This is what your needs are. I mean, the approaches are, are simple, but powerful. And I think we need much more of that. And I, and I thank you both for your um, persistence in terms of fighting for justice and um, equality. I'll reference one other thing you had mentioned about when you started kind of the lead and you got together and you discussed and it was like, it was okay to get together to discuss, just don't be heard. You know, and there's a, there's a, there's a really big, I mean, that's a really powerful thing. And that happens in a lot of organizations. You can talk about it. Just don't talk about it outside your office. Don't let anybody else know you're doing it, but it's almost like here, you can vent if that's what you need to do. And we're not talking about things that need to be vented privately. This is, you know, emotions are going to come and they're going to go, they're going to raise, they're going to lower. And that's part of the beauty of passion. I mean, that's what motivates people. And that that's what makes people believe that you're real. You're not a commercial. You're not just in it for the buck. Because people are tired of, of being sold. You know, they really want somebody who gets it. And I think you guys both do a wonderful job with that. So I want to um, mention the website, usagainstalzheimers.org. And Michael, we didn't even talk about your book that is called From the Corner Office of Alzheimer's. You can find that on um, Amazon, but uh, feel free to reach out. And, you know, if you want to get a hold of Michael, feel free to reach out to me and I can go ahead and and connect you on that. And you can get a hold of George through his organization. But thank you so much for your time today and your your brilliance in fighting for a better world. Appreciate it. Lori, thank you for for having us. Uh, You know, your show uh, really is one of those elements of our community that brings us together. You get information out, you bring people uh, to the conversation. And so compliments to you on what you do every day. Thanks to uh, Alzheimer's Speaks. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lori and George, and for everything you do, Lori, and for everything you do, George. I'm sure we will get it resolved quickly with you with the helm. Well, and and with you driving me, Michael. (laughs) Take care, all. Bye-bye. And to our audience, please like, click, and share. Don't keep these wonderful nuggets to yourself. There's a lot of hope out there in the world. There's a lot of great resources. Tap into them and pass them along. Till next time. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me, listen now, search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.